Howard Hines Education Foundation's Get to College program. Based in South Haven, Jackson, and Ocean Springs, Get to College advisors help students and families plan and pay for college. Learn more at woodwardhines.org. Good morning. It's 830 on Friday, November 16th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Supreme Court will hear a controversial Mississippi death penalty case. Find out why. Then advocates share why they think transgender awareness is important for communities across the state. Policy change will also help create an affirming environment for transgender-identified people of the state of Mississippi. And we'll learn how improvements in medicine and research have made concussions a game-changer for athletes of all ages. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A Mississippi inmate will have his day in the nation's highest court. According to a recent court order, the U.S. Supreme Court is agreeing to hear Curtis Flowers' latest appeal of his 2010 murder conviction. The court is granting Flowers' June petition for writ of certiorari, which asks the justices to review District Attorney Doug Evans. Justices will consider whether Evans has a history of purposeful race discrimination and if it should be a factor in his handling of the Flowers case. Some say Evans purposely struck black jurors in Flowers' case for murders at Tardy Furniture in Winona 22 years ago. Samara Freemark is senior producer for American Public Media. The Flowers case was the subject of APM's In the Dark podcast, which included an analysis of Evans' jury selection over his 26 years in office. She tells us more. Curtis Flowers currently is, is still on, on death row in Parchment Prison. Um, his last conviction, the sixth conviction, was in 2010. And that conviction has been on appeal ever since then. And um, so he has what's called a direct appeal going on. And it has gone to the state Supreme Court and then to the U.S. Supreme Court, which sent it back to the state Supreme Court. And uh, it, it finally went back to the U.S. Supreme Court um, fairly recently, and, and that's what we—that's where we got the news um, just on Friday that the, the U.S. Supreme Court decided to hear the case. As the senior producer and reporter for APM's In the Dark podcasts, you talked to us earlier about what you had discovered, and some of that was uh, the actions of the prosecutor— that you said you found to be questionable. Mm -hmm. Did the Supreme Court's decision hinge on that? Is he involved in that, or is that the reason why the Supreme Court is taking this up? So we don't know why the Supreme Court decided to hear the case. They don't give reasons um, when they they announced their decision to grant cert. Um, We do know that some of our findings were included in um, an anarchist brief that was that was filed with the U.S. Supreme Court that they that they were looking at when they were making this decision about whether to grant cert. Um, And the findings that that did make it into that anarchist brief had to do specifically with our work on jury selection in Doug Evans district. So not just in the Curtis Flowers trials, but in every trial, in every case that we could find information on. Um, in Doug Evans' district since the early 90s when he took office as DA. And so we spent a lot of time um, doing a really in-depth reporting project to try to discover what was happening in jury selection in all of these cases. And we found 
that across all of these cases, the prosecutor, Doug Evans, had been striking black jurors at a rate almost four and a half times the rate that he was striking white jurors. And this is this is information that uh, had not been uncovered before. It was really difficult to to get to that number. Um, and so that, that information was cited in a brief to the U.S. Supreme Court. We don't know how much of a role it played in their decision to grant cert, um, and we probably won't know um, until they issue an, a, dec- a decision in the case um, probably in June. This is his defense team, Curtis Flowers' defense team, that filed the amicus brief and used information that you had provided? Yeah, so the amicus brief was actually, uh, it was it was filed, it wasn't filed specifically by the defense team. The way amicus briefs work is they're filed, um, they're kind of like briefs in support of the petition. And so this was filed by uh, by another organization as support for the defense, for the petition from the defense. Is it unusual for the U.S. Supreme Court to hear an individual case like this? Yeah, it's, we were we were really surprised, actually, when we heard on Friday that they had granted cert um, because, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court gets um, usually around seven or 8,000 petitions every year. So that's seven or 8,000 people who want the court to hear their claims. And, and of that, it grants cert in only generally about 80. So we're talking about 1% of cases. So this is incredibly unusual. Will the Supreme Court ask for other materials in considering this? Yeah, that's another thing we don't know. We've, we were actually just talking about that and wondering if that would happen. Um, you know, at this point, the, the next step probably will be that the U.S. Supreme Court will ask for written briefs from both the defense and the, the state. Um, and so they'll ask for, for more information about the case, and then they can decide. They could make a decision just on the basis of those written briefs, or they could schedule oral arguments. And so we're not sure if more information will, will be added or not, but we'll just have to wait and see. Is it conceivable that um, your In the Dark podcast might be um, part of that information that could be fr- provided? Sure. I mean, it's 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 relevant to the question of, of what's going on in jury selection in the case. Again, you know, it's, um, we, we just, we don't know at this stage, we don't know what the court is going to do and we don't know how broad a range of materials they're going to allow in because the work that was cited in that amicus brief had to do with, uh, cases that Doug Evans office had been involved with all over his district, not just the Curtis flowers case. And traditionally in these Batson cases, which is the issue that they're considering in, in this case, um, they're looking specifically at the, the case at hand, the case that is being appealed. And so it would be a bit of a departure if they really started looking at the full scope of what the prosecutor was doing in all of his cases. That would be um, that would be unusual, which is not to say it, it won't happen. We will just have to see. The story of Curtis Flowers is really remarkable in many ways. And you told the story. How many podcasts overall? Uh, we had, um, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I'm sorry. You, it's only been a couple of months, and already I'm forgetting. I believe we had 11 episodes, um, but then we've had update episodes as well. We've continued to cover the case uh, as the in, the in the past couple of months since the podcast stopped airing in July. So, and people can be brought up to speed. There's a place where they can find them and listen to them. Absolutely. So you can find the podcast. If you, if you do listen to podcasts, 
you can go to whatever you use, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, whatever you use to listen to podcasts and just search In the Dark, and that'll get you there. Uh, you can also go to inthedarkpodcast.org, which is our website and has the podcast, but it also has a whole bunch more material that we've posted online related to jury selection and all of the other findings that we that we have from, from our reporting. How many trials altogether has Curtis Flowers been through? He's had six. So this is an appeal of the sixth trial. And, you know, if he wins his appeal, if the state Supreme Court votes in his favor and overturns his conviction, um, there will be a possibility for a seventh trial. Because at that point, the, the prosecutor, Doug Evans, the ball will be in his court and he'll have to decide whether he wants to try Curtis Flowers for a seventh time. Samara Freemark is a reporter and senior producer for American Public Media's In the Dark podcast. Thank you so much, Samara. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk to you. The court will hear arguments from both Flowers' attorneys and lawyers for the state of Mississippi to whether Flowers' conviction should be upheld or overturned. Flowers' attorneys expect the case to be heard sometime before June. Coming up, advocates share why they think transgender awareness is important for communities across the state. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Running a business requires smart decisions every day. Make a good decision for your company today and reach MPB listeners through MPB program underwriting. For more information, go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. LGBTQ advocates are raising awareness about violence and discrimination against transgender individuals in Mississippi. A transgender individual is someone who identifies differently than the gender they were assigned at birth. According to UCLA's Williams Institute, there are at least 15,000 transgender people living in Mississippi. During this National Trans Awareness Week, some are working to educate Mississippians on the issues the group faces. Rob Hill is state director for the Human Rights Campaign in Mississippi, an LGBTQ civil rights advocacy organization. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood they're pushing for legislation that will hold individuals accountable for discrimination and violence. In Mississippi, uh, we've had at least one uh, trans murder that we know, a murder of Diamond Stevens over in Meridian. That occurred around June of this year. Nationwide, we've had uh, we've been able to number 22 uh, trans murders. Why do you think um, there's such a hate for transgender people for them to be, um, you know, murdered like that? I think that there's still um, a lot of stigma around this because people don't know their trans neighbors. And again, trans people are, are, are people. They, they work, they live, they you know, raise families, they have, they have families, they have friends, they have coworkers. Um, but yet a lot of times people don't, uh, don't know their trans neighbors and they don't know their stories. And a lot of times that's because you know, people don't feel comfortable telling their story, especially in a place like Mississippi where the stigma is is, is high as it relates to being LGBTQ. And while, uh, while gay and lesbian bisexual people have been able to um, gain acceptance, it's still the trans people that still whose stories are, are not um, are, are not often heard. And, and some of that's the problem with people who are not trans in the LGBTQ community. Um, there's still um, work to do around acceptance, just around uh, people who are lesbian, gay, and, and bisexual. But certainly uh, beyond that, there's still a lot of work to do getting people to know uh, trans people and know what it's like to be trans. We've certainly been telling the stories through campaigns, and so we always make sure that we highlight the lives of trans people. 
so that people get to know that there are trans people right here in Mississippi, right in the the county where they live, in the town where they live, uh, and maybe over in the next cubicle. According to the Williams Institute, uh, attempted suicide rate among transgender adults is more than 40 percent and up to 80 percent for those who have been traumatized. Um, and, and that's another area. I mean, you know, just though individuals who are not transgender, you know, we all deal with our own um, issues internally and mm-hmm. we have high rates of suicide amongst children and amongst adults. But for transgender adults, what can you say about that, about, I guess, the pressures around them, how that might even entice them to also uh, attempt suicide? Well, obviously, you know, uh, mental illness is something that a lot of people deal with. But uh, certainly that's exacerbated when you're a trans person, um, when you have to deal with all of the, the, uh, all of the stigma around you. Um, and certainly even, even the, the fear of being murdered simply because of who you are. I mean, that, that obviously uh, escalates the kind of anxiety and the kind of fear that people have as trans, as trans people. And so it's a sad reality. Um, it makes sense that they would have um, disproportionate amounts of suicide uh, you know, because of everything that they have to face and everything they have to fear. In Mississippi, um, there are no anti-discrimination policies or laws against violence done to transgender individuals. Can you kind of talk about why that is, and because of that, what's at stake? The only laws that include sexual orientation and gender identity uh, around hate crimes uh, protections are federal. The James Byrd, Matthew Shepard Act that was passed several years ago with bipartisan support in the um, Congress of the United States and signed into law by President Obama. Um, The unfortunate thing is that Mississippi is among the states that doesn't have statewide hate crimes laws that include sexual orientation and gender identity. So very often, um, a lot of the crimes that occur against trans people uh, or against, you know, to bias motivated crime because of someone's sexual orientation, they may not be uh, investigated or prosecuted as a hate crime, very often we have to wait for evidence to surface for the FBI to be alerted. We're working right now um, with legislators. This past session, we had a uh, bill that was introduced into the uh, into the Senate. It passed out of the Judiciary Aid Committee with um, unanimous support to uh, add sexual orientation and gender identity to our state hate crimes law so that DAs and local prosecutors don't have to wait on the FBI to get involved to prosecute a, a crime as a hate crime. Unfortunately, that while it made it out of committee, it was double referred and ran up against a uh, time constraint. It didn't make it out to the floor. But we're working hard in this next session to get that bill reintroduced, and hopefully we can update our state hate crimes laws to include sexual orientation and gender identity and have that signed by the governor in the 2019 session. Rob Hill is the state director of the Human Rights Campaign in Mississippi. Thank you, Rob, so much. Thank you. Jensen Mader of Jackson is the Transgender Education and Advocacy Coordinator with the ACLU of Mississippi. He's also a transgender male. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood about the violence he's observed against transgender individuals in the state. Trans Awareness Week is a week in which we remember those who identify as transgender or gender nonconforming and lives were cut too short. They were lost due to Um, violence, and they were murdered for being nothing other than themselves. 
Have you ever experienced any discrimination yourself or do you have any personal stories of friends or um, someone that you know that might have lost their life because of that? An example of discrimination might be um, slurs. I've been called to many different slurs such as uh, he, she, or it, or a woman that thinks she's a man. Um, it can be very hurtful and um, can lead to many other non-positive um, situations. I know you talked about um, policies. Um, do you feel that any of those laws protect you? as as a person um, from hate crimes or any discrimination? And if so, what laws and why? If not, what needs to happen? I don't feel like there are policies in place in Mississippi that protect me as a trans-identified person. There are no policy protections in the state of Mississippi that are inclusive of gender identity or sexual orientation. Uh, we rely on federal laws for protections. The TEAP programming with the ACLU of Mississippi is working hard to pass non-discrimination ordinances in several areas across the state, as well as pushing for the Mississippi Civil Rights Act on a state level. How would that hold someone accountable? Like, like what what would happen to someone if they were to... Um, discriminate. If these policies were in place, uh, there would be uh, consequences if someone were to discriminate against someone because of their gender identity, for example. But people would be held accountable for their actions. Which is the goal here. That's what's important, that people are held accountable for their actions. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's important that people are held accountable for their actions. Um, it's also important that people are educated and part of the TEAP program is making sure that we educate people on these matters. Um, it's a lot simpler said than done, but um, just simply putting policies into place will make a change, but uh, we will need a cultural shift as well and educating these communities along with those policy changes is what can really take the state to the next level in protecting all people. Jensen Matar with the ACLU. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time, Ashley. Coming up, we'll learn how improvements in medicine and research have made concussions a game changer for athletes of all ages. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPB would like to thank Daniel, Coker, Horton, and Bell and the Mississippi Healthcare Alliance for underwriting MPB programs. Your company can be an underwriter, too. Find out more. Go to mpbonline.org slash underwriting to find out how. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hits occur in many sports, but what happens to the brain when the hits to the head come early and often? Concussions can lead to long-term health consequences. MPB TV Southern Remedy features Football Hall of Famer Brett Favre and former high school athletes in a special two-part series premiering tonight. Favre says he decided to get involved in concussion prevention awareness partly out of fear. My whole life revolved around sports, football, Obviously, my last two or three years, concussion and concussion talk really took off. It was sort of scary what you were hearing. 
a lot of what's true, what's what's real, what should I believe, and and so it was a little, it was more interesting and intriguing for me, with a lot of fear wrapped in that of what's to come, and so I paid a lot more interest in in something that I probably otherwise wouldn't. He says his final days in the NFL offered an awakening. My last play as an NFL player was probably the worst concussion I ever had. As I walked off the field and, and started kind of getting my bearings straight, I thought to myself, I don't know if there's ever a good time for a concussion, but at 41, the, if there was ever writing on the wall, this is it, I'm done. And so then, you know, it just was a snowball effect with every day in the news, uh, someone killed themselves or uh, someone com- comes out and says they have CTE and, and so on and so forth. And not to mention I have three, three grand boys who I don't know if they'll play football. One's eight, one's four, and one's uh, just a year old. And I tell people all the time, I'm, I'm, and it may be shocking to them, but I'm not going to encourage them to play football. I'm not, I wouldn't discourage them, I guess. Uh, we'll see if that ever comes up. There's a lot of fear of, of what we don't know and what little bit we do know it's not good. I just feel like it's important that people know as much as they can. You know, my dad was my football coach. He ruled with an iron fist, and there was no way I would ever say, I think I should come out because I'm a little dizzy. Uh, that was a different era, but we didn't know what we know now. And I think it's important that parents know what they're, you know, they're putting their kids up against. There are safer ways. I believe that tackle football should not be done until 17, 18 years old, uh, just to protect the, the children. Favre tells MPB's Catherine Rodenmeyer he is not speaking out for personal gain. You know, I'm, not, I'm making no money on this. You know, I mean, in spite of what people may think, I just I feel like that there's safer choices as we move up the ladder. How many times in your career were you either encouraged to play through or you just personally felt the need to play through? when you were dinged? My last five years, there was some sort of concussion protocol in place. Prior to that, you would, you never would consider coming out of a game for a concussion or star, you know, I saw stars or you know, I'm a little dizzy. That, that was just part of the game. You know, you didn't think about coming out because that was, you know, you just, you'd be considered a, a wimp, you know, or whatever. You know, I, my last five years is when I, that, the last play I came out and that was my last play ever. I had a concussion several years before that where I actually blacked out for a period of time. You know, and I get this question all the time. How many concussions have you had? And I sort of jokingly say, I don't remember. In all honesty, I don't know because what we know now is you don't have to be knocked out cold for a concussion. And that's what's scary. When, if you said, how many times did I see stars? Every time I got tackled. And if, if that's a concussion, it's pretty frightening. Have you personally noticed any changes or cognitive declines for you? You know, it's, it's, it's a tough question to answer. Do I forget my keys or forget a word or forget uh, something because I'm soon to be 49 years old or because I played 321 straight football games? I, I don't know. There's something wrong with a concussion. And, you know, we always thought, what's the big deal, you know? Give me a smell and salt, I'll go back in. But then, and it came a point where, whoa, it could be much worse than, than what we thought. You know, and now you hear, like, Dwight Clark, who was a great player, just passed away from with ALS, 60 years old. 
I saw him a year and a half ago, and he looked great. I was diagnosed shortly after that and deteriorated very quickly. And I bring him up because there's been a lot of talk of, was his ALS the contributing factor, head trauma, from obviously football? No one can say for certain. So there's a, a, a great deal of fear of the unknown. So what's the future of football? Good question. I think football is strong enough to survive the worst of storms. It's extremely popular. I love football. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't trade, I say I wouldn't trade my career for anything. I, I, I gave it everything I possibly could, and I feel like it, it gave me back what I, I hoped for and then some. NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre with our Catherine Rodenmeyer. Concussion airs tonight at 7.30 on MPB TV or view it anytime online. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, the only daily radio news magazine that covers the whole state. It's only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at